the Virtual Band Director Conference. This is a 24-7 resource for you, band directors all over the world. I'm your host, John Liner. Let's get this party started. Enjoy this bonus session of the Virtual Band Director Conference with Corey Graves and Robert Herrings. Hey, what's going on, everybody? We're here with two fantastic band directors, and I'm so excited to be able to spend some time with them and get some knowledge from them. So we're gonna, we have a list of questions. We're going to go straight through these questions uh, and see what we can learn. So without further ado, here's Mr. Corey Graves and Mr. Robert Herrings. Yay! Insert applause here. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Robert, let's start with you, man. It says, uh, the first question we have, what was something that surprised you in your first five years of teaching? Well, you know, I think there were a lot of things that surprised me um, jumping into this profession. Um, I think the first one, the biggest one was that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. You know, and I, uh, as I came out of college, as a lot of young people do, um, we think we're ready and we have it all figured out. And I, you know, I was like, I'm going to go be a head band director because I, you know, I know it all. And I learned in that first year really quickly that there were so many things that, um, that I was deficient on and also that. I thought that I could teach instruments and realized that those method classes really did it prepare me for what I was about to embark upon. Um, so the experience of, you know, learning how to play those instruments outside of the classroom and um, taking that time to spend time with private teachers and, and colleagues who play those instruments was really beneficial for me because it helped me uh, truly learn um, how those instruments work and how to operate in great ways to teach the kids um, to play their instrument. Um, something else that was really um, shocking for me was classroom management. I think I had taken that for granted for so long because I was just a, a good kid in school and I just assumed that, you know, everybody was going to be great. And then you walk out and you um, meet those children that um, are just your sweet little darlings that need extra love. And um, so I worked my way through uh, the discipline part, um, which was really great and had some really great mentors to help me out with that. You know, so those are the two biggest things, you know, as well as the job is hard. It's harder than we realize. And, um, and I always told myself, remember the why. And I think we've talked about that a lot in, in interviews that I've done. It's just that when it gets hard and, and you want to give up and you think that you can't do it anymore, remember why you went into the profession. Um, and I had to remind myself a lot of that in the first five years because it was tough, you know, with the ups and downs. So, um, Mr. Graves, what do you um, have to say on that topic? And I was shocked by how much I didn't know, just like you said. And, like, beyond the notes and the rhythms, like, a class in college can only teach you the surface level and prepare you um, for certain things like parents, administration, broken instruments, fundraisers, hormonal children, hormonal parents. Like there are just so many things that only real life experience is going to give you. Um, so I felt really underprepared for that. But as we through working through those five years, you you figure it out. You figure out what works for your community. You figure out what works for you. And I was also really like shocked by how many people were willing and flattered by like flattered by you just asking them for help. That people who have been in the trenches already just said, just humble yourself and say, hey, what do you know? What could I learn from you? What can you tell me? What should I be doing by now? Where, where were you at this point? Um, and once you can figure out who to talk to about, you know, getting your foot in the door in places that you need to get your foot in your door in, um, yeah, things kind of open themselves up. All right, we're going to switch gears just a little bit here. I'm going to I'm going to shift this one for you, Corey. 
so a lot of times we look at our method books for sixth graders and a lot of times it has them functioning in, in about an octave of space. So what are some ways that you get students to get out of that range, out of that one octave set and feel comfortable moving about the instrument? Well, I personally believe like method books are not used, they should not be used for your fundamental teaching. They are really no more than song books if you really look at it. Like when um, those method books were originally created is for teaching students who are in a heterogeneous setup and you try, try to get through everything at the same time, which I get and it, that, that's the case in some places. Uh, but by and large, if you are able to teach students how to play the at, play at a simple level, the advanced skills that you want them to have is that, and that's with range and things like that. You need to modify those things. So I try to look at it from a standpoint of getting uh, fundamental mastery um, with supplemental supplementary, excuse me, supplementary materials write them in half notes, write them in a really simple, like two to three note range. And that's how you start to build it because those are not going to be taught in a book. Like, so if you want your students to have more than a song, <laughs> then teach them the fundamentals through something that you've written out for them. And if I can just um, tag on to that, you know, I also agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think some people use the method book as the only tool in their class. Um, and I know it's fun for the kids. I use the method book as um, to dangle the carrot. You know, they're in band because they want to play music. They want to play a song. So I use that book so that we have that because there are things that they can learn from playing those tunes about holding notes full value and touching the rest and notes touching, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that you want to teach a beginner student. Um, you know, but as Corey said, developing those fundamental skills, you know, and like with brass students, like I develop range a lot through lip slurs. And not even you know you can do a lot of things with kids not having any music in front of them but the I play you play where you're demonstrating lip slurs and skills that you want them to do and they're playing notes that you don't they don't even know what they are so that by the time you get to them inside of the music or inside of a scale or outside of those ranges they're easy for them to do already because they've already played it they just didn't know what they were looking at and so same thing with woodwind you know doing lips uh, you know octave slurs and things up and down they don't even need to know what it is clarinets playing low e add the register key they don't know you know and so it's just just giving them all the tools that they need to, to be successful and breaking it down in little pieces so that when you take the music away they can focus on you know just the embouchure and, and hand position and all the little things that you want so that when you do put the music in front of them you don't have to worry about those roadblocks and those hurdles as they are um, progressing through their growth and I think it's critical to kind of sandwich what you guys are saying there's no uh, with the method books method books don't drive the curriculum Right, right. Teachers I feel like there are some really good method books that are being created, though, now with the idea that they are instrument specific and they're not trying to cater to an entire sixth grade band. Like there's like a great horn book out in Canada yes. yes. that, that addresses that. So until we get more of those things for every instrument, then I feel like that's kind of the approach we need to take to it. All right, Robert, this one's for you. If you have a weak low brass section in your band, what do you do to balance that ensemble? Well, the first thing I would do is I would encourage whoever, you know, is dealing with this situation to, first of all, think about what you're going to program at the beginning of the year that, that's going to not put so much stress 
on the demand of what those students are going to have to play. So you can use that opportunity to develop the skills that you want to strengthen the low brass section. And I know um, that it can be tough sometimes to find music that is enjoyable. And I put that in quotes um, because low brass parts, you know, an easy 0.5 and grade one lit cannot always be the most fun. But you want to find something that is going to develop them in that first semester so that you can play harder things, you know, in the spring. You know, when you do that, I just think that you need to be mindful of the ability level of the kids that you have and what can they do and what do you think you're going to be able to get them to? So choose music that is going to challenge them, but it's not going to be so far out of their realm that they can't achieve that goal. Because the whole thing is you want to grow the kid. And even though there's great music out there and we want to play this, that, and the other, we have to just make sure that we're picking music that's attainable for our students. And so I would just encourage you to really be mindful of what um, the, again, the ability level of the kids is and look at that when you're selecting music first, then go back and look at the other parts because if the other like the upper brass and the woodwinds are stronger you know then they're going to be able to handle probably what you're going to need to pick for those students in the low brass section and then of course when you're balancing the low brass you just got to get you know of course your low reeds to fit inside of the low brass and think about color groups and i think that's um uh, color groups and, and instrumentation are things that people don't always understand, but I think that's a good question and a good, you know, start asking people or reference that so that you know how to fit those sounds inside of the low brass sound so that you achieve balance within the ensemble so that it sounds like um, even that the kids are more mature than they're actually playing. You know, I mean, they actually are. So that being said, that's, you know, th that's some information in, that I would share with you. And I think Mr. Graves probably has some really good information to share as well. I, I agree with that 100%. And this like goes a little bit beyond just making the low brass fit or getting the band to fit to the low brass because I find that the better band sounds are the ones that have great transparency. And that transparency come from having um, isolation groups. Um, I learned this from Miss Melody and Mallow. Like you, you, there is a hierarchy of things that fit together. So you've got flute and oboe that fits with trumpet. You've got clarinet that goes with horn. You've got alto saxophone that goes with trombone. You've got um, bassoon that goes with, or tenor sax with euphonium, and you've got the rest of your low reeds with tuba. And so once you can get those like timbres to start matching each other, that's what creates the transparency that so many people are oftentimes looking for but can't always find. And a good way to go about that is to start establishing that in your daily drills mm -hmm. and figuring out a way to listen to those sets of people play at the same time so that they understand how that a color instrument like a woodwind fits inside of a, a power instrument like that of a brass. All right. Uno más. In uh, middle school with homogenous classes, so when we have instruments that are all together, like trumpet class and flute class, those kinds of things, how does you at your campuses divide up um, who's going to teach what classes? Mm, I think that kind of, it kind of dictates itself if you've got like a woodwind person, a brass person and a percussion person. But I think it's really important that you as a teacher are fundamentally set to teach anything. Um, you take what your strengths are on the staff and you, and you disperse that around. Um, I remember when I first started teaching in Roma, I started teaching clarinet and I'm a euphonium person. So to me, I felt like I taught clarinet better than I did euphonium because 
I didn't want to let anything slide. And so when you're teaching something that you are not familiar with or it isn't second nature, because I can play euphonium all day long and it's just second nature because I've been doing that since sixth grade. So I may let something slide that I, as, as a non-clarinetist growing up, would say, oh, no, I've got to get this taken care of immediately or the sound is not going to be what it's supposed to do. And so you're just really hypervigilant. So I think you take what you're really confident with, you teach that. And then you also try to find something that you're not so confident with and you teach the snot out of that and you become a better teacher as a result of that. So I think find something that challenges you and find something that you're confident with. And then you check with each other as uh, throughout the year with the rest of your staff to make sure that you're that you are, especially if you're teaching something that you're not super comfortable with, that you are keeping each other in the same, like you're holding each other to a high standard that your kids aren't going to get behind because you didn't know. Like there's always a way to figure it out. Well, he's perfectly right. Everything that Corey said, I would have just said. And I think, you know, the other thing is, um, I think it's really important for students to hear a fundamental sound being played on that instrument. And so I know that on my staff, I think it's really important for me whenever I'm selecting who's going to teach what class is, you know, who do I know outside of the private lesson staff? Because you don't, you know, it our teaching is not completely based on private lesson staff. They don't have private lessons in Roma, but it, like at Henry, we have private lessons, you know? So, you know, I don't want, you know, me to just think like, well, just because, you know, my tuba teacher plays with a great sound, we don't need to be able to demonstrate a great sound. I disagree with that because the tuba teacher, not every kid is in lessons and not every kid is going to, and they only see that if they are in lessons, they only see that teacher once a week for 30 minutes, right? At max. So that being said, if they're only hearing that sound one time a week, then they're never going to really get it in their ear and understand what the true tone quality is. So I think it's really important that as that sound is being played each day in class and demonstrated, especially like through warmups and things like that, when people do that, like I play, you play, I think it's important that you're able to demonstrate um, that tone quality. So picking a staff member that you know is going to be able to achieve those goals, I think is really important at the same time. And you know, for anyone that is thrown into a situation because there are a lot of people in different states and different places where your beginner classes, you are the only band director that is teaching, you know, all woodwinds. And so what I would say to someone in that situation is, you know, find an instrument every summer that you're going to get better at. You know, there are so many great books out there, The Art of Teaching Flute, The Art of Teaching Clarinet, Trombone, Trumpet. There are all of those books are out there and they're really great information. The Farkas books are wonderful, you know, and so pick up one of those books and make it a reading, make it reading material for yourself and then take the instrument home and try to play the instrument yourself. Feel like what it feels like for your beginner to sit in that chair and play that instrument. And then you just got to figure out how you're going to take what you've um, learned on your own and in the books and develop what I call your tool bag and put it on your tool bag to take it back to the class the next day to continue to, you know, get the kids to the level in which you want them to be. And if you don't expect the kids to practice, you need to practice too, especially if it's something that, like my, like COVID project right now is flute. Like I, Flute is not my strong suit. I, I feel like I can tell you what to do, but I don't always physically know if I'm saying the right thing. And I just happen to be lucky enough that one of my best friends is a flute player and she lives right next door. So she, she'll not, no, that's wrong. Try again. But like, but like it's okay. It's okay to take lessons too. Like, like there's so many people at, and a lot of us are bored right now. Like pick up your instrument, call somebody that knows what they'll more than happy to help you. Mm-hmm. Robert, I, w- I want to shoot this uh, your way as a head director. And I think Mike Howard kind of talked about this the other night, but as a head director, how do you encourage your staff? So like your assistant directors uh, to have the same vision that you do for your program and to have the same teaching expectations for the students. 
Well, I think it comes from leadership from the top with it when it comes to um, all of that, you know, but you know, with when it comes to expectations and how we're going to teach, I think if you have a game plan, a layout for your staff and for your students and, and you're leading, then that will help them. And you think about like a first year teacher coming out of college, they they don't know what to do. So if you put them into a situation where you they don't have any guidance, then we can't expect them to get uh, produce the same results that we would for those who do have guidance. So I think it comes from the top with great leadership and not only leadership as in having a curriculum or a map for your program, but also like in just the way you present yourself and carry yourself and the expectations of how you're prepared. And I've been fortunate enough to work on staffs where um, I'm very picky about who I hire. And so that helps. And then by the time they get in there, I've hired people that are very good at watching and observing and then being able to take what they've seen demonstrated and then break it down to where it needs to be for their ensembles and their students. And I think that's really special. That's something that a leader can do as well, you know, and that's something that I try to do. Even when we sit down at the beginning of the year, we meet halfway through the year about where we are in the program with beginners or where we are with our UIL preparation or whatever it is, you know, I try to help meet them at where they are and then offer feedback and tools that are going to help them be successful. And I think when you do that, um, it will truly help the people, your staff feel like they're a part of the team, first of all. And the second part is they're going to continue to grow and they're going to get better. So they're going to want to continue to come back because they see the, the fruits of their labor, you know, at, you know, with, within the work of the students. Um, you know, the other thing, you know, that I'm very, very, very passionate about is, you know, spending time as a staff. I think it's really important um, to have staff bonding and that that can be whatever it is. Maybe you guys get together and go, you know, have dinner once a week, or maybe you spend time after school, you know, visiting with each other, checking in once a week. I think that's super important. And I think as a leader of a program, it's really important for you to make sure that you let your staff know that you love them, that you're supportive of them, that you, that you want to help and that you're there for them. And I, it's like I tell my staff too, when they come in and do, we do checks and we switch beginner classes and things. We're not, we're all human and we all make mistakes. And then you're going to go in my class and you're going to see things that I didn't even realize, like the flute thumb, for instance, like one year, I totally wasn't even focused on the flute thumb, but we're all human. But that's why we switched out through those classes and, and work together for the common goal of our students. And I think if you can definitely do that, it really um, will help the team feel more unified. And, you know, with goals, I think just making sure that everybody understands that it's about the kids. And I think the number one goal should be everything that you do should be student centered. And so many people try to teach to win. And what I tell everyone that I talk to is don't teach to win, you know, just teach and the winning will take care of itself, you know, and then you have to ask yourself, well, define winning. Well, winning to me is the kid when they leave my class every day, they want to come back the next day. They're better than when they left. And when they the next day they come back, they're better than when they left. And then they want to continue in band. We not only through middle school, but through high school. And so I think those are the, the mark of a great program. And if you can get everybody on board to make it student centered, then I think all the goals that you have set out for your program and your students will um, take care of themselves. Do you have anything you want to tag onto that, Corey? That was, that was heavy. Um, I agree. The um, bounce ideas, well, no, I'm serious. I bounce ideas off each other as much as you can. And even talking about checking each other about primary instruments that you're starting or not, go into each other's rehearsals and write something down, have a staff set of scores, and you need to be 
everybody's rehearsals if possible. And if not, do it after school sometime. And if everyone doesn't have something they are in charge of in the program, I think that's when you start running into, well, the head director thinks they are the end all be all and I don't have a say in this. But if everyone has some, like if you are in charge of uniforms, that's your thing and no one else can touch your thing. Like that's that's when it's a community approach to teaching and that's where the buy-in happens. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, this next question we have is asking, can we share a curriculum map of our middle school band program? I just think you need to have, you know, just overall, um, just general statement, you need to, um, I always start, say, begin with the end in mind. You need to think about where you want to be at the end of the year and then work backwards and think about how you're going to get your kids there. What are the steps that you need to go through um, to help achieve the goals that you want to have for your kids? And if you don't know how to achieve those goals, that's when, as Corey has already said, that's when you get out and you ask people for help and you call the people that are around you um, and that are, and everybody's willing to help. And we're, we live in such a, a great time now where band has changed so much, where there's so much help and there's so many mentors out there that are willing to just give you everything um, that they have to help you be successful and so that's I would tell you encourage you to you know reach out to those people but if they'll clarify the question for us I think that we can you know um, definitely share go ahead Mr. Like we can talk about the sweet tarts of band here too real quickly yeah. then about like the things that are really important and the order they are important so the tarts are with tone First, that's your priority. If it doesn't sound good, nobody wants to hear it anyway. So teach the tone. And then after that, you teach articulation as, as, as appropriate for the level that they're in. So I, don't, I feel like long connected, sixth grade, get the air flowing, figure out the basic movements of the tongue and don't introduce anything else until that long air is really established. Then you're talking about um, rhythmic things that come up after that. I think that's a, the next priority. And if you're not doing some type of rhythm every day, six, seven, eight, doesn't matter, all the way through 12, then I think you're going to really feel the effects of that later when you are trying to sight read or put together harder music. Um, then technique as appropriate. And those things come. Take your time because going, you'll see the benefits of going slow. Otherwise, you're going to pay the price for that later. And then style as appropriate as well. Um, at the end of that, that finishes the tarts because I don't really feel like there's a reason for a sixth grader to be playing staccato at, in December of their sixth grade year. There's no re reason for it if the previous parts of the tarts have been taught. So maybe that can help guide that question. Um, but tarts bill from six to 12. They don't just stop at six. And Mr. Graves and I put a great clinic on at Midwest. So, and at TBA, I think we did both of them. So look those clinics up. They're really good. And they talk really in detail about developing the program six through eight through the TARTS. And now that we talk about that, that's, um, yes. We can share that presentation if we need to. Yes. Um, all right. This is kind of going back to our beginner our conversation about beginners. Um, what are some ways that you can work or rehearse with heterogeneous groups, with beginner heterogeneous groups? I think that comes with patience, first and foremost, because, and you have to be willing to go slower. You have to go slower when they are different instruments. And don't buy into this whole thing of, I'm online 400. 3,600 million in the beginner book, which line are you on? Because you haven't taught a skill, you've taught a song if that's what you're doing. 
Um, if fine, if you can, if, you, if, if there's any way to manipulate it, try to use those um, isolation groups I talked about and putting those like groups together. But if not, try to address it in a way that you're at least in the same part of the range, um, if you can, and try to help your horns out as much as you can, because that the middle of their register is not where the middle of everybody else's register is. And that could be something that's really challenging for them to have to deal with. But if you're willing to go, I, I, I say this because I don't have a whole lot of experience with teaching hetero, heterogeneous classes, but I think the idea is that if you go slower and stay within the same types of ranges, then I think you'll see a lot more success than if you're throwing a book at them that has the kids playing in a spot where they should not be playing in at that stage of the year. You know, and, and, and I don't have a lot of experience with heterogeneous classes either. Um, I have some colleagues that teach out of state that um, that do have heterogeneous classes. And I think some of the things that I have learned from them that have been really successful um, is that they do use the book as their, you know, tool to play their tunes. But they have developed on their own skills and techniques that they're teaching the students that are um, relevant to the group of kids that are seated in front of them. And so they try to like, they have their trumpets and horns together. So they write exercises, you know, that are made that for trumpet and horn where they can work together. Um, and you know, something else that works well too is putting your French horns. Sometimes when you have like French horns and trumpets together, put them on the trumpet um, parts, you know, and play out of the same book and do those kind of things. And then you can split them out later on when they're more developed, but starting them that way sometimes is really good you know if you're fortunate enough to have woodwinds and brass together then you can do more woodwinds separate from brass then you can do more technique stuff with your woodwind stuff and then in your brass classes you can do lots of long tones and lip slurs to develop like we were talking about earlier range and, and all of those things and then you can put those um put it together in the book when you get to the book and then apply those skills that they learned there to the music that they're playing out of the book. Um, again, since we don't have those kind of classes, we, we probably don't have the best answers for that, but I think, you know, hopefully that offers some suggestions for everyone who's listening. Definitely. Now, Corey, I wanna start with you on this one. Uh, and this can be a, as big of a question as, as we wanna make it, but what do you include in your fundamental, your warm up block uh, for your rehearsals? Uh, in a daily drill. I use, I think long tones are very important no matter what grade the students are in because that sets the tone, literally no pun intended, um, for what they're going to sound like. And I think when we teach that in a full band setting, that that translates to their, with their private practice on their own, that we shouldn't just pick up our instrument and just start mashing all the keys. Like we just, we need to be really deliberate about what we're doing. Well, let's be honest. So I think long tones are important, and I think it's important to do what I call, or actually what it is called, is passing eights. And so we're taking the, the same pitch from um, for a total of eight counts and passing it from the lowest section of the band to the highest section of the band. So that would travel from tuba to euphonium to trombone, all the way through, through the lower reeds, the middle of the reeds, the high reeds. And what we're trying to do is make sure that everyone sounds, have the same type of tonal energy in their sound and that everyone in the section sounds the same way too because you will start fixing intonation problems when your tones are matching because I think a lot of intonation issues can be fixed if everyone sounds the same way. You cannot tune two different tones. 
no matter if you have a tuner in front of you in a clip and it says you're in tune, your tone is wrong, you are out of tune. Um, after passing eights and we're ensuring that everyone has the same type of tonal energy, we do some, some of the same types of drills with those isolation groups that I was talking about before. So we're now having the same timbre with the same type of energy and we're passing that in, a groups, in groups of five versus the group of like 10 to 13 that we might use beforehand. Um, I think artic articulation drills are important. Um, getting the tongue moving, um, not necessarily through staccato notes or anything. It's just like, this is kind of a, a rapid tongue move. Like, can we place, can we play things in time with the metronome? And if you are not using a metronome, start using a metronome. Um, get, if you can't afford a metronome, get some sticks, you get them together, you need a metronome because things are not vertically aligned a lot of the times because we don't spend enough time trying to vertically align them. And it would become second nature because you use it every day and the rehearsal starts with click, 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 let's go. Then that's, it's an, an eight skill that the kids will have. Um, after articulation drills, um, I think it's important. And, you know, and it kind of modifies throughout the year. What I would necessarily do in the fall will not always be what I'm doing in the spring and whatever I'm doing like eight weeks out from a concert versus a, a week from the concert, it's going like the proportion of what I'm doing is going to change too. But if I'm thinking at the beginning of the school year, um, scales are important. And um, I think a lot of times those get neglected in an effort to get to music too quickly. And when you do that, and if you think about it, all music is, is scales. If you don't have the ability to read the key signature, of what you just played the scale that you don't really understand it. And then that's when everyone starts playing A flat instead of A natural because you don't know what you're reading. Um, I think after scales, some type of um, articulation drill as far as I am using a chart that shows the spacing of like staccato notes versus legato notes and things like that. And after like the kids have seen it, for maybe a week or so we need it needs to be so simple that it's a memorized exhibition of excellence like you just play it without the hindrance of it being in your face like we were saying earlier i may teach a clarinet the fingering for low e and they have no idea what it is that they're playing that we've eliminated one of the barriers so that we can get a great tone quality on that note and they understand how it feels and it's easy well, the same thing is going to happen once the kids understand like what a staccato note is and we start talking about the space that's in between those notes or a legato note where all these notes are touching. And once I've gone through all of those things, you may be the type of person that uses a corral. Um, I think that would probably be the spot for it if it's right at the end of that and then jump into whatever type of music. If you don't have a, like a set corral, don't be afraid. Like if you have some slow piece of music, use a section of that because it's killing two birds with one stone. And it's gonna sound even better because look how many more repetitions they have on that. But I think it's important that you think of it as a daily drill and not as a warm up because I think those two words are very different. Um, if I can like blow inside of an instrument, my, my instrument's ready to go. But if I have a daily drill, that means I, there is some expectation that I'm doing this every day with an intent purpose of getting better at it. Um, and the daily drill is going to be something that you may never perfect until the last day of the school year, but there's always this expectation of it getting better 
And daily drills become boring when you don't have some type of variation to them. Because while it should be a memorized exhibition of excellence, what you're doing is you're taking the skills that you know and you're enhancing them by adding something to it every day too. You know, I like to think about um, <laughs> I like to think about daily drill um, being a collection of exercises uh, or skills that we are trying to make better by every time we do it. And that's basically everything that Corey went through. You know, there are a couple things that, you know, I would add and say, you know, some people sing, some people don't. I think it's really I am a big singer on my campus. Um, so I we start singing in sixth grade. And I think that's super important for the kids to help develop their their oral um, listening skills and then help them. And I always say that if you can't sing it, you, if you can't hear it, you can't play it, you know, and by singing, I have uh, learned over time that um, singing helps develop them with their their intonation as well because they hear pitches better and more correctly when they sing more because they have that oral image in their ear. Um, so, I, I, you know, I would definitely say singing. The other thing that Corey and Corey talked about all of the great things that you would do um, throughout the year. Um, and I would encourage everyone, especially as you get into like the second semester and make your daily drill enhance the music that you are about to work on. So if you are, you know, at the beginning of the year, I have a 47 minute class period and I can spend 35 minutes on fundamentals or daily drill. But as I get in the spring semester and we're two weeks away, what I'm going to do in that daily drill is going to be a skill that is going to enhance what we're about to work on in the music. So there's no sense in wasting your daily drill time on something that's not going to make your music better when you get that close to performances. So, you know, I would add that. And then the last thing I want to say is um, talk about the metronome. I know that depending on where you are in the world, um, there are many thoughts on a metronome. And my blanket statement for the metronome is this. The metronome is there to help develop pulse. It's to help your students develop develop an internal pulse and help your students to develop alignment and vertical alignment and all of it. It's all important. That does not mean that you cannot teach your children to play musically. And I think sometimes people think that if they have a metronome going, that they'll never be able to teach their kids to play musically. Well, I think that you can teach your kids to play musically. And I think that a very good job of doing that. That's not to be arrogant because that's not trying to be that at all. But if you're teaching your kids about connecting notes and notes touching in time together and getting the air from the start, middle to the end, and they're learning how to play notes and where it's going and long air and moving, when you take the metronome away to do musical phrases and to and do ebb and flow and be musical and play the phrase, now they're able to achieve that faster because you don't have all the gaps in the sound and all the, and all the roadblocks standing in the way. So again, the metronome is a tool to help you get, you know, help develop your kids internal pulse and to help develop them um, throughout time. And then when you take the metronome away, you can still be musical. So again, I encourage everyone to use a metronome and it does not matter what state I go to, to do any kind of work. I always ask for a metronome because I think it's really great. And then I hope that, you know, I'm able to demonstrate skills for people to see how great we, how you utilize the metronome as a tool be, and not let it be a crutch and think that it's something that's going to hinder the students from being musical. Because yes, that's what we're doing. We're teaching music and we're teaching them how to be musical and to love music and to play phrases. All that stuff is really important. But alignment and internal pulse is also just as important as the other things. Okay, this is, this is kind of relevant to the right now, uh, as in like COVID-19 uh, day and age. Uh, with uh, everything being online now, how are you or your, your district or your campus um, working on recruiting and interviewing for beginners? 
Um, right now, we are finishing up a recruitment video for our kids. Um, luckily, I, I was able to see all of my elementary campuses before everything kind of went haywire. And um, so we were able to establish a presence on the campus and say, hey, this is band, joint band, blah, 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 blah. And everything's supposed to happen after spring break. Um, with that being said, we still want to keep uh, some visibility. Um, and so what I'm doing is having all of our staff members play a little fun 20-second little ditty or something that's recognizable just to show what the instruments are. Um, we're having pictures of the kids doing some really awesome fun things that they've done and accomplished. And I think too, it, like it, with this, it going to be uh, something that's online, that's a good thing for the seventh on up to see because that's just a great mem the great memories that they've created for themselves too. So ham it up, have fun with it, and let the kids know that BAM's still gonna go on after all of this. Um, now, as far as like testing kids specifically, like I do not have a solution for that right now. Um, and with that, I'm waiting till the next start of the school year. Uh, but I am creating a Google form for the kids. As I send out that video, they can sign up that way and like let them know there is no audition for band, but we will place you where you need to be based on the things that we will see when you get there. We promise you'll be able to try out everything. But I do want to make sure that you are signed up because it's like school's still going to go on. They're about to start making schedules and making sure the kids are in the right spots. And so whatever we can do to help that be an easier skill, but definitely still get all the kids that want to be in band in band, we need to do that. So that's how um, we and at Henry, what we're doing, and actually kind of in Leander ISD right now, um, we are all kind of doing the form. And so we created this form that goes out and it asks questions, um, simple questions like um, about their grades. It asks about if they have piano experience, if they ask if they have an overbite, an underbite, if they have a normal bite, their body size, their hand size, you know, all of those kind of things um, to kind of determine. And then we're giving them the opportunity to pick um, their top four choices. And as they choose one, one of them disappears. So you can't put saxophone, you know, four times in a row. Um, so that being said, and then we're going to look at that information for schedule purposes, because it is really important that we help our counselors out. As Corey already said, you know, we want to make sure that we're not making more work for our counselors. Um, right now. So what I'm doing is just kind of dividing them up into classes based on what their initial requests are and kind of the questions that they answer. And we're kind of dividing kids up with the exception of percussion and double reads. And we're getting them in classes where we think that um, it will help at least get them in a class. Then we're kind of waiting throughout the district to see what they're going to allow, what the virus is going to do, um, what they're going to allow us to do when we're going to be able to get in the buildings. We're actually working with a company right now um, to help develop a testing kit um, to kind out that is plastic you know all plastic mouthpieces um, and, um, and and a plastic reed and a, and a fake flute head joint and affect all these other things um, that you might be able to use um, to help test your kids to be more safe if we do get to a situation where we can test you know it's our hope in Leander ISD that in the month of July that we may be able to do live testings where all of the band directors are going to try to help everybody's campuses out and it will be smaller numbers and multiple days where we will have where you will sign up for a window of time and we will only 
have so many people in the building at a time and those people will come through and, and then they'll go around station to station. I'm even looking at utilizing the entire hallway and doing like a flute room and then two doors down is the clarinet room and then two doors down from that is something else where the kids, so we rotate people through um, in a smaller numbers, but still getting them through and hopefully getting kids tested. You know, I think they're, uh, we have some colleagues that are doing some wonderful online things. Um, I know that Gary Williams is doing some wonderful online testing as well as Rachel Maxwell. Um, she's doing some wonderful online testing stuff. Um, to me, I just, I just really want to try to see them live. And if we get to the point where we have to wait till the first day of school, then I will wait till the first day of school to um, retest kids and get kids where we need them to be. Um, as well as, you know, working with our music stores, you know, and something that we are doing in Leander with our music stores is we're kind of letting them know what our anticipated numbers are. For instance, I'm gonna have 100, if everybody signs up and shows up, I'll have 162 incoming beginners. And so the purpose, you know, and out of that, I will probably start 30 trumpets. So we're kind of letting the music store know that like, we're looking at 30 starting beginner, 30 beginner trumpets. And then that way they can kind of be working on their um, inventory to make sure that when we do get to that point that they're gonna be able to um, allow for our students to um, get their instruments and I know the music stores are working really diligently a lot of them but they're working really hard to get a lot of things done online so parents never have to come into the store they never have to do all those things to get their instrument rental and then they can take care of getting all the things they need for their student um, to start band successfully so I am going to wait as long as humanly possible um, I think it's really important to me and I know it is to Corey too it's really important for us to get the kids on the right instrument and yes we want them to love what they play but a student is going to fall in love with playing their instrument if they if they show signs of success on that and they're set up for that. If they're on the wrong instrument and they're not supposed to be on it, they're going to quit band. You know, they're going to hate it. They're never going to practice. They're going to quit and you're going to lose that kid. And so that's not what we want to do. We want to get kids as close to what they want to be on, but help guide them and steer them in the direction of what we think um, they show signs of being truly successful on. And so, um, and in our program, and I know Corey does this too, we reevaluate kids in December. And if we have a kid that we look and we go, you know, I'm human, I make mistakes, we put this kid on trumpet and this kid maybe should be on euphonium, you know, or whatever the case would be. We will move kids around as necessary within, you know, without trying to, you know, stress them out with like going from a brass instrument to a woodwind instrument or vice versa, you know, trying to keep them within the same families. And this year, I think in December, it will still be really crucial to definitely do a big double check of our kids at that time. Yeah just because you just don't know. So that's kind of what we're doing right now. And again, I, and Corey and I were on a Zoom um, before, and one of the things that we said is that we don't think there's a right or wrong way, you know, of, for what you're gonna do. You need to just figure out a system that you think is gonna be number one, safe for not only the students, but also your staff. I think that's super important. Keep yourself healthy, but you know, what else is gonna, and the second thing is, you know, what works best for your campus? What's gonna be in the best interest? But don't forget about taking care of your counselors. I think that's really important and I'm really passionate passionate about that because those are the ones that are going to take care of you when you need them to. And so be thinking about that and be thinking ahead and be in touch with them, reach out to them, see what they need. How can you help them? And I think if you can do all those things through the crisis that we're going through right now, when it, when the, it flips and we need them to work, help us, they will be all more, more than happy to, to do all the things that we need to help. Yeah. You really don't have a choice. <laughs> that's really hard for somebody who's like a control freak like I am. So like, this is a learning process. <laughs> All right, this is kind of kind of going along the lines of a counselor, but uh, or needing the counselors. What type of schedule have you seen to be most successful for middle middle school programs? So when I read this question earlier, I had multiple thoughts on it, and um, you know, I think first of all. 
um, the schedule, everybody's situation is so different. So if you are a, a one person teaching everything, your schedule that's going to be work for you is going to be completely different than someone who's like me that has, you know, multiple people teaching on my staff, you know, and also, you know, what schedule works best? Well, what schedule is allowed within your master schedule? Are you double blocked or are you not double blocked? You know, are you, you know, I think it, there's so many, um, aspects to that question, you know, based on the situation in which you're in. So I think it's a situational question. And you say like, well, if I have double block band and I, you know, this, that, and the, or double block classes, this, that, and the other, what would be the best situation? You know, for me, ideally it would be, and I think this is the, Mr. Graves, and he'll probably speak too, but, you know, I would love to have, you know, heterogeneous, cla homogeneous classes, sorry, you know, where, you know, I have instruments together and, you know, we have double reeds together and I have tuba euphonium together, but everything else is broken out, you know, and I'm teaching just flute and clarinet and saxophone and trumpet, you know, by themselves in the beginner year. And then in the seventh and eighth grade bands or the advanced bands, I do, um, again, some places their, their master schedule only allows for a seventh grade band and an eighth grade band. And that happens a lot of places out of state. And But we're fortunate enough in Texas where I am where we have ability-based bands. So it's it's great to have three level bands or four level bands. I mean, every kid you have, um, some of our friends in Houston have five bands at the middle school that are ability-based. You know, and I think all of that is, you know, truly wonderful too. So again, I think it's a situational question and it kind of just depends on what parameters in which you're working in. Then, you know, you can kind of figure out what works best for you. But I do think the biggest thing is making sure that you set your schedule up in the way that you can the best serve your students what is a way that you can achieve the goals that you want to achieve while reaching every single kid that's seated in front of you and i know that can be challenging if especially if you're by yourself you know doing it and trying to figure out how to map your way through um, what the schedule will look like. And I think really more so in those kind of situations, it's going to be that curriculum. How are you going to, what's your curriculum look like? What's your plan for that class? How are you going to be successful um, with those students when you're like that? And then of course, if you work with multiple people in the staff, as Corey already said, making sure that you put where, where their strengths are, get people where the, it's their forte and give them duties and, and, and uh, help them uh, uh, find where they're, you know, I'm the one in charge of this. I'm doing instrument inventory. I'm doing that. And I think by having all of those pieces in place all the puzzles move all the puzzle pieces fit together perfectly and then it helps for the ideal teaching situation i think no matter what you're doing what's going to detect like what's going to set your program up for success no matter the schedule is how consistent you are about what you're doing mm -hmm. um i i've taught in a situation where i have all my kids at one time at for 45 minutes i have taught in a in a school where I had only my seventh graders who were divided in a mixed ability band. Who <laughs> so the seventh graders from this band that play with eighth graders in another band could only meet after school. But like you have to figure out the best way to do that. That turned out to be a good situation for me because it was like teaching a sectional every day and then putting it together later. So there's there's always probably a benefit to anything you do. You just have to figure out what it is and how you're going to take advantage of the situation. So look at every opportunity as a, like, how am I to squeeze the, the most out of the kids? And how is this a benefit versus, boy, my life sucks. Like, I sure hate that this is happening to me right now. Like, what was me? Like, it's not what was me, figure it out. <laughs> like, you can do it. And I, like, well, it's, it's true because I think a lot of times everyone's looking for this ideal situation or like the grass is greener on the other side, but you don't know like what the source of that green grass is. It could be like a sewer. Like you don't know. Like, so like 
figure out how you're just gonna uh, tackle it yourself and be consistent in your approach to do it because kids know when you don't when you aren't prepared and kids know when you are flying by the seat of your pants kids know when you don't have a high expectation for yourself so you don't have one of them like just be consistent and i think that will kind of take care of 90 percent of the and Robert, you had kind of mentioned something about this. The next question is about using uh, using a trumpet book for horn players. But why? The question is why do some uh, beginner horn teachers use the beginning horns on the trumpet book? Why do they let them play out of that book? I think it starts. You know, the horn um, because of where it's pitched can very easily get outside of the range that they need to be playing way too soon. So it creates, you know, bad habits for the kids and they're not ready to do those things yet. And they're not ready to be playing, you know, third space C yet. They're not ready. And so by putting them on the trumpet book, it actually gets them in the middle of their horn and it gets them actually playing middle and then it goes down and then it goes up. So basically what it does is it helps you develop that sweet spot of the French horn, um, which is what you really want them to be comfortable with. What I call, you know, playing around home base, you know, um, you know, develop that before you go outside of that range. Um, and so putting them on those books oftentimes gives them the opportunity to truly be successful. And I shouldn't say oftentimes, it really does, you know, help them be successful. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we do it. And like our beginner students actually buy the beginner French, I mean, the beginner trumpet book, they don't buy the beginner French horn book. And then the pages that we want out of the French horn book, we actually have a set of, um, we use essential elements. So we have a set of essential elements, French horn books there. And so when we want to use those pages, we either hand the books out to the kids or we go and photocopy what we need for that, you know, for the students. But again, we're not using the book so much. Um, we're using a, a, so many fundamental exercises and we have these fundamental packets for all the instruments that, you know, we use so much of that. And then we just let the book again, be a tool that the kids use um, to play songs because let's be real, they signed up for band to play songs and mm -hmm. they don't know anything different in the beginning of the year. And they think hot cross buns and Mary had a little lamb and Mary, twinkle, twinkle, little star are the best thing since sliced bread and the banana boat song which i hate but um <laughs> <laughs> oh anyways but yes so that's why we use it um at uh, while we put our trumpets on the i mean our horns on the trumpet book all right so the next question can go a lot of different directions uh so Corey, uh what is the best way to keep students engaged in a lesson uh, I think if you want the kids to stay engaged, you have to give them the reason to not zone out. Um, the younger they are, the more entertained I feel like sometimes they need to be. And it may not be within your character to be wild and crazy and like on all cylinders all the time. But if you are talking in a monotone voice and I, you, anyone's going to zone out or they're just not going to be very interested in what you're saying. So I think you have to sell like it's the best thing since sliced bread. You've got to edutain 100%. So if you don't have a great relationship with your kids, figure out something, get to know who those kids are. And Robert and I talk about this a lot. A lot of the success comes from the kids knowing that you want them to be there. And that's when they don't leave. So um, edutain, sell what you're doing, keep yourself accountable for keeping them engaged from day number one. I think it's really important, and I was talking about this in the Zoom the other day. You set the tone for how you want your class to happen on the first day of sixth grade band. My sixth graders aren't even allowed to come into the band hall, and so they've all lined up in, in a straight line, because I need to know you can follow instructions with a huge group of people, and it's only me being the teacher. Like, we learned how to respect the band hall first, and like craft the music and all that, 
And then once you establish who you are to them, not I didn't notice I never said you needed to be mean about everything. You're just setting the ground rules for the band hall. This is your safe haven, so you need to treat it a certain way. Um, I think that'll help keep kids engaged because you've already said this is my layer <laughs> and I'm the head dragon here. So like <laughs> that's let's follow along with that. But two, I think sometimes kids get disengaged because educators talk too much mm-hmm. and they don't keep enough face time. The kids, what we're saying, got into music to play music or because their friends are there. Uh, they didn't get there to listen to you pontificate about all the things you learned in college. So like, well, <laughs> so I, I have a, I have a four metronome click rule. If I can't say like if if I'm a, if I'm in a drilling thing, if I can't say what I need to say in four beats, I'm talking too much. Or if like if I could stop the metronome and just explain something, but I also think it's really important to keep like straws and things like that with kids' names on them so that you can call them at any time to make sure that they are paying attention. Um, At my school, I call it the box of happiness, joy, and smiles. The kids call it the box of death. It is what it is. So (laughs) all of their names are put inside of the box three times. That way, if I pull their name out once, they don't get disengaged and know I'm not going to call on them. I can just like, all right, here we go. We're with this scale today. Like, here's the show and smell. Let's go. Here up. All right, Johnny, here we go. And then we pull out his name again. Oh, look. And then, like, if this kid's going to toot, I know he's not. Well, look, Johnny's name is there again. Sometimes Johnny's name might come out there five or six times and it's not really in there. But you, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to keep the kids on their toes and let them know that, like, you're serious about wanting them to be really good at what they do. And if they see that and they know they don't have a moment of rest, I think they'll stay engaged. Yeah, I also I agree with all of that, which is yes. Um, you know, the other thing I tell people, there are so many people that are always like, well, my kids aren't engaged, my kids aren't engaged. And I look at them and I go, what's your plan for the class? And then you look and they look at you and I go, well, we're just going to do the book. And I'm like, well, you got to have a plan. I think it's really important. One of the things that we do is our plan for the day is actually um, when, when the students walk in the room and we're like changing slides, you know, between, you know, classes, you know, you put the set. So the kids walk in and they look up on the board, and they know exactly what it is. Like the goal is to get through all of those things. Now, let's be real. I tell everyone to over to over plan, you know, in case you get through things that you have other things to do, over plan. And then I look at the students and then I go, oh, we almost got to the end, even though I knew we weren't going to get to that, that other part. But like, we almost got to the end. So the goal is that we're going to keep really working so we can try to get to the, all of the things that we want to check off our list every day. And so we put a lot of ownership on the kids to make sure that we continue to move. And another way to do that is I also do the timing. So like, for instance, the bell for my top band rings at 1259, you know, 1259. And then you need to be in your seat by 102, you know? And then, so we're just going down the list and they see those times on there. And I have like a little alarm set on my phone and they go off and the kids know, and they're looking at, they know. And I'm like going, look, we're two minutes behind right now. We got to, we got to get this to keep them engaged and keep them moving so that they know that we're trying to get through the lesson, you know? So I think that really works. Corey said it best. We have a sticker on our stand that says talk less, play more. And basically that's a reminder because it's really easy for you to go off on a tangent, you know, on something, but it's like, if you can't sit in four clicks, then you need to just go on. You know, I think discipline and keeping kids engaged are kind of go hand in hand. If you keep the horn on your face and you keep them playing, you don't have any discipline problems, you know? And so if you can just keep it rep and keep it moving, I think that's really good. And also change it up. Don't spend, you know, kids are going to be disengaged. Think about when right now they only can stay engaged for so long. So if your lesson is 25 minutes on 
you know, playing a lip slur, well, they're going to check out, right? So divide your time up in the class so that you can get through material and also have something at the end. And I know I'm the biggest offender of it. Sometimes I don't get to the, the fun stuff at the end, like the song or whatever the case would be, but have something at the end, that, like the goal that the kids working towards. Like We're going to be able to play Mary Hello Lamb. We get fit. Got to get all these things done because that's like the uh, reward for the work that they've done, you know, in the rest, of the rest of the period. So I think those are all, you know, everything Corey said is absolutely right. And I hope that, you know, that helps, you know, you guys as you continue to work on keeping your kids engaged. Uh, this is something that I think is super important, especially with us being, um, away from people's uh, like our actual students, like that interaction, human interaction. Um, and Robert, I want you to start with this one. Other than forming positive relationships, which I think is the key here, um, what are some classroom management strategies you utilize, especially for rowdy classes? Um, I think it's really good. You know, one of the things that we try not to do is, and I put this in quotes, single kids out because and sometimes you do single kids out like I go down the road to make to check and make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to you know they play their part or whatever the case would be but when I say single kids out um, a great way is like and this is again I'll sometimes have the metronome running you know in a beginner class and there's a little stinker on the other side and instead of calling that kid out in front of everybody get go to that side of the room where that kid is and stand beside that student and just stand beside the kid and keep teaching the class and stop and the metronome's going even though i don't think you should talk over the metronome if that's going but the metronome's going you you still say what you need to say you keep but you stand right there beside the kid and a lot of times that will fix the behavior you know um i have we also do strikes you know and our thing i don't do like sign the book or anything like that you know but usually i'll walk over to the kid and i just lean down i'll go that's strike one and i just whisper it to the kid you know and then we go on and usually if you do that one time it usually you know they'll they'll fix themselves they'll sit and be like oh he's aware that i am you know not paying attention um there's always inevitably in, in a class may not happen in every class but in a class there's that kid that you know really just doesn't want to be there and probably is causing issues because he just doesn't want to be in the class well i really try to find a way to get to know that kid learn something about that student learn something that it in that that he's passionate about whether it be football or it be video games and try to connect with that student on that level to try to turn the behavior around you know and i'll even use you know jokes like you know, I'll stop and be like, you know, now, Johnny, would you do that? If you were playing a video game and you were about to, would you do X, Y, Z, A, B, and C? And they'll laugh and go, no. And I'll go, well, let's just treat it like a video game then here. So here we go. You're, it's my turn now. You get your instrument up. And so that kind of thing to kind of get to know the students and get them to be on your side. I, again, I, even though we talk about the relationship piece, which I think is still really big, you know, those are tools outside of that. But when the kids know, as Corey said from the beginning, when they know what the expectation of the class is, you set those rules from the very beginning and they know that you love and care about them. I really do think that they will continue to work for you. And again, I, keep the kids playing. If the pace of the class is moving fast and they're playing, you don't have time for discipline issues, you know, and then I always do to the, if we get to the point, I say, okay, well, we're just going to have you pack up. And then I have them pack up and they don't get to go put their instrument in the locker. They just have to sit there, but they have to keep their book open. And after and I ask them to continue to participate by clapping along or whatever the case would be. And then I let like two or three minutes go by. And then I'll look at the student and go, Johnny, do you think you can get your instrument back out and participate with us? Because I would really love for you to, to play with us. And most of the time they'll go, yes, sir. Okay. And then they'll get their shot and then they're fine. 
So I think that sometimes kids just act out, you know, not even intentionally, sometimes it's unintentional, but I just think that we just need to continue to keep them engaged in, um, and or stay on top of them, but keep the lessons engaging and, and, and get over there and get in their area and be around them and let them know that like, I understand that you are, you know, not doing what you're supposed to be doing. No, I, I really don't have anything to add to that because I, I agree with it all. Okay. We're, oh, we're winding down to the last couple questions here on the list. Um, how do you motivate uh, middle school students to practice at home and to get the buy-in from the parents? Uh, this, the person who wrote the question said, many of the families spend a lot of money on competitive sports and activities, so practicing a school-based class instrument is not a priority. Well, I think it's important that, I think the kids who deal with that the most are the kids who aren't seeing the types of music that they like or aren't seeing the immediate success on their instrument, personally speaking. Um, so if there is a way to like, like ask them like, hey, what kind of music do you like? And you can write some simple version of that because what they wanna do is to go show off to the parents, hey, I, or show off their, really, okay, let's be honest, to their friends, that they know the latest chart or they can do this or that. Um, and that's a good way to learn who your kids are and just write out something that's really simple for them. And, and a lot of times, like, we, people will play these really hard pep rally tunes that the kids aren't ready for. And there's all these crazy rhythms and, like, crazy articulations. And the range is wrong. And it just was not, like, made for middle school, in my opinion. Uh, write something simple for them to, and make that their project. Or, like, they, that could be, like, their assignment that they have to turn in and they can turn it in through Google Classroom and that's, like, that's what they're going to do and practice at home and give them unlimited chances and just give glowing reviews of, oh, that's so much better, but give something, like, to critique it and say, well, why don't you fix this and I want you to resubmit it and just give them lots of chances to keep playing because what you want is them to get, to get in their idea that I don't want to turn in something that isn't, my closest attempt to perfection, it may never be reached, but that's teaching the kid how to practice too, um, that they're not just turning in anything. Um, I think maybe that's a good way to start with it. Um, what do you think? You know, we deal with a lot of students at my campus that um, are involved in like the um, extracurricular activities outside of school and the, the football and the soccer leagues and the volleyball um, groups. You know, and one of the things I encourage, I try to educate our parents on first is the importance of practice. And I just talk about, you know, just like the students are going to volleyball practice every day to, to get better at their skill. That's the same thing with band and, and whatever craft you have, if you want to advance in that craft, then you have to, of course, um, you have to, of course, uh, you know, continue to practice and continue to do those things. Um, the other thing I have found is a lot of times students in those situations don't practice because they don't know how to manage their time. And so one of the things I do is I'll reach out to the student first and go, hey, when are you practicing? You know, oh, I have this and I have to, then I have to do my homework. And then I sit down and I go, well, why don't you come see me after school? Or why don't you come see me during lunch? Or why don't you, I'll have Miss, you know, Willer pull you during class. And then we sit down and we map out their day. And then we talk about like, well, what time are you getting up every morning? What are you eating breakfast? What time do you get to school? What time? And just kind of go through the day to kind of help them lay out. Because again, students don't know how to manage their time. And that's one of the things that we're teaching. And we're teaching them so many skills outside of music. You know, we're teaching them about life and how to live, you know, and, and be a functioning member of society. And so 
Um, because of that, I think we have found so much success over our time by helping the kids develop a, a plan. And not all parents are at home with their students diligently working on those plans. They just know they've got to get all four of their children to this one's got to go to volleyball, this one's got soccer practice, got to get pick up here from daycare, got to get dinner made, got to get. So they're not even thinking about that. You know, they're just like, well, he didn't have time to practice his instrument because we have all these other things to go on. So, and uh, once I sit down with the student and I kind of develop a time that I think might work for them, or we come up with a schedule for them, then I email the parent and I'm so nice about it. Like, Hey, visited with Johnny today. And we talked about, you know, his schedule. I, he says that he's really busy. He's got all these things going on. He's in club sports, you know? And so we sat down to kind of figure out a way um, that would be really helpful for him because he really cares and he really wants to be good. And he really has the desire to advance at the center. And I just sell it in such a positive way to the parent, you know, and I think I've only had one parent ever email back that was like truly negative about me, you know, interfering in their life, you know, and then when it all, you know, said and done, their kid actually ended up getting hurt in football that year and blew out his knee. And then all of a sudden they had this great, you know, appreciation for everything that I was doing, you know, but that all being said, I think that those are tools um, to help with that. Um, you know, and some people do practice sheets. Some people don't, some kids are not motivated by grades. Some kids are motivated by grades. I think you just got to figure out what that motivational tactic is for kids as well. I think that's super important because then that can help you figure out how you can guide that student to achieve success. And as you all know, practice is key, you know, like they have to practice and they do them, they're going to get better. And I also relate it to their like math class. And I'll tell parents too, like the reason that, you know, we ask the kids to work on these things at night is because the next day we're going to probably go on to a new skill. And if they don't get it, then they fall behind on their skills. And then and I just talk with them when they fall behind, they stop liking it and then they want to quit and, you know, that type of thing. And so I just encourage the parents and just kind of give them the breakdown of all the things um, to just try to help them. But I always do as much as I can, you know, to help our students figure out when the best time to practice is. And, you know, and some of them come in and practice during lunch, like they go down really quickly and they eat their lunch really fast and then they come practice their instrument, you know, or they'll come practice first and then set a timer. And then the last five minutes or seven minutes or so, because let's be real, kids don't need that much long, that much time to eat. You know, we open our band hall up during lunch and before and after school for kids to have opportunities to practice before they leave the building. So they don't have to take their instrument home. They can still make their club sports or whatever it is that they're involved in. Um, I think those are all super important. And I think if you can show parents um, and students that you are willing to work with them and you're on their side and you know, like, Oh, I totally understand that you're in club sports and I want to do everything I can, you know, for your kid to help. They will buy in and they will come out and they'll go like, you know what, this is great. You know, um, this is what we're going to do to help our kid be successful. And don't underestimate what kids will do for a sticker. That's true. <laughs> Even eighth grade football boys, just to see, uh, get a sticker or like to get their name placed on a board or something where it's visible. I am first chair all universe, like whatever it is. Like, they, like I feel like kids are sometimes they're just really extrinsically motivated and we want them to love Mozart and this, this and whatever. Well, no. They just need to know that they're being valued and that you see that they're awesome and somebody else to see that they're awesome too. So it's, there's so many ways around that one. And it's, it's just going to take a lot of digging to figure out what it is because not every kid's the same. Now, Robert, you had mentioned uh, mm -hmm. a couple books in our, uh, I think it was last, last week's panel that you were on and somebody asked, Oh, does Mr. Herrings have any book recommendations? So uh, for either one of you, what are, and I know that y'all have authored or co-authored some books. Uh-oh, he's going to get the library. Get your library cards out. No, I didn't know. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just going to, I'm just going to talk about a few things, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to interrupt. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Y'all are the authors. I am but a humble servant. Well, you know, I, 
I think I referenced this earlier. I said there's the art of teaching flute and the art of teaching horn by Farkas and the art of teaching. I think all of those arts of teaching books are great books for you to read. You know, I think that especially if you are unfamiliar with the instrument or, and let's be real, um, in a um, in a woodwind class that you might have in college, you know, you might play, it may be a semester and you're going to cover all the woodwinds in this semester. So you may play bassoon for two weeks and then you're on the clarinet or whatever the case would be. So, you know, I think it's really important that you, that you get some knowledge underneath your, uh, underneath your fingers and in your mind about the instruments and of course playing the instruments. Um, you know, there is the, the wonderful, you know, book that I'm sure that everybody has read and this is on teaching band, the notes from Eddie Green. This book is really good. Um, I've read it and um, and I couldn't find it recently and then we found it again. And so it's a great book and I'm going to reread it again. I think it's, it's a great read and has really great information in it. Um, and I think this is a great way. And I love the way it's structured. It kind of starts at the beginning as like an interview um, type thing. And then it gets into like the read later on, which I think, so it's just like the interviewing him, asking him questions and he's just responding. And then it kind of gets into um, the material. And I think that's really great. Um, there's also, and I'm just going to, this is not because we want you to buy the book, but this is a really great book. And it's called Rehearsing the Middle School Band by Stephen Meyer. And in this book is, <laughs> there are so many great <laughs> band directors um, here that have taught middle school. Um, and some of them have taught high school. Um, Mr. Graves is in the book. I'm in the book. And we've, I mean, he teaches at the high school as well. Um, and I think this book sheds light from so many different perspectives of teaching band and ways to um, empower students and get them to um just shed light on why we teach and why we've gotten to where we've gotten and why we, how we get kids to achieve goals. Um, this book is really, really great. Um, and it has some wonderful rehearsal strategies in here. And it also gives you great ways to think about how you're going to approach maybe teaching rhythm or how you're going to approach teaching, you know, other things. So I think it's really great. You know, um, there's the book, that book too. what'd you say? And there's a high school version of that book. Too. Yes, exactly. Um, there are the um, the Peter Boonchak books are really good. And that's like the teaching music with passion, teaching music with purpose, teaching music with promise. And then he did another one that was teaching with passion. It was perhaps a perfect promise altogether. You know, I think that that book is really good. And then, of course, there's that wonderful book by Leonard Bernstein, The Joy of Music, um, which I think everybody should read because it really is so great. Um, Frank Battisti has some great books out there, you know, that I think are truly um, wonderful. Um, and then, of course, Course, there's one um, out there I'm looking at my list here uh, is song and wind by Arnold Jacobs um, that is a really great book um, and I think that I would encourage people you know to reference that book too you know and then outside of band literature you know I encourage people to read you know like Simon Sinek and Dr. Tim you know they put out really good information that man is just so inspirational and just so uh, enlightening you know for you um, that it helps shed you know light on yes teaching but also just like how to survive through teaching <laughs> you know and and so um, I encourage you to do those. Those are some of the books that I recommend. I'm sure Corey has some other. Those were the ones I want to say. And, and also add to that Habits of a successful, successful Band Director, The Pitfalls and Solutions by Scott Rush. I think it's a great, it's a good read too, because it kind of encompasses all of those things. Not just, uh, it, it tells you how to be a band director and the things you may encounter when you're doing that too. And that's something we don't see enough. Like this is a compendium telling you how to do your job. Oh, man, we've had a really great time getting to hear uh, from these two awesome directors. So another huge, 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 huge thank you to you guys. And do you guys have any last bits of wisdom you want to give to, to the listeners? Um, I, you know, I would just wrap up and say, you know, I think one of the joys about what we do is is 
teach music and music is awesome, amazing and wonderful. And when you think about being a musician, you shared within that ensemble, that experience. Yes, you contributed, but you also sat there and together as a team, you made music together. So I encourage, you know, I feel like in Texas, we're in a very um, special place where there is a lot of sharing and a lot of caring that's going on. And I encourage everyone around, no matter where you are, um, to reach out to the directors around you. And just remember by, you know, some people sometimes don't want to share information and sometimes they're worried about you know, giving away their tricks and, you know, all the types of things and what we, you know, we share and help each other. And when you get information, maybe maybe what I give you or what Corey gives you or, or whoever gives it to you does not mean that you're going to do it exactly that way in your program. That's just information. And you take that information and you adapt it for your situation. So I encourage everyone around to reach out to your colleagues and don't be afraid to share, you know, and, and also when you can get outside of your band hall and go to someone else's band hall, it does two things. Number one, it, you learn so much just from watching other people. And on the back half of that, and this is not a knock on anyone, but it gives you a greater appreciation for things that you have going on in your band hall too. And so I think that's really important. So I'll just wrap up and say, remember, we're all in this together. I know that's like a big phrase that's going around right now, but we really are all, all in this together. And that's teaching kids, you know, and, and teaching music and teaching, raising students that are going to be, you know, good citizens of society. And remember, the middle school years are such crucial years, and they really do shape students into who they're going to be and how they're going to, you know, what, how they view life and on the, on the other side and how they even like survive in college. Sometimes I hear so many times from our our students who are in college, like, I would never have survived that class if I didn't have band, you know? And so I just encourage you to keep those things in the back of your mind and also continue to share, 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 you know, because that's how we get through this together. And, you know, again, there's no right or wrong way um, to, you know, do anything, you know, but there are great tools that are out there to help you find successful ways to teach your kids and get them to where you want them to be. But there is a wrong way to teach the planet, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just remember why you started teaching and don't underestimate what you are doing for someone else whether that is a student whether that is a colleague so no matter how young you are you can teach somebody something and they can learn from you just as much as you can learn from them and if you take that approach you're going to get so much more out of your job and you're going to find so much more enjoyment and fulfillment in what you're doing versus being like compounded with so many like deadlines and I've got to do this by this day and am I on track with this like just calm down and enjoy the experience because if this has taught us anything in COVID-19 like you don't know when you're gonna see your kids again sometimes so relish the moment have a plan set and teach it and use it and maximize it and just enjoy music remember the why and with that, we say thank you guys. If you like what you heard, subscribe and check out our website, virtualbanddirectorconference.com. Thanks for joining us, and remember, there's no stealing in band when you give with an open hand.